Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, Erica Wagner, author of Chief Engineer, Washington Roebling, The Man Who Built the Brooklyn Bridge. Erica Wagner, author of Chief Engineer, Washington Roebling, The Man Who Built the Brooklyn Bridge. Why do you want to write about Washington Roebling? Well, I have been fascinated, not to say obsessed, by Washington since I was a teenager, which is a little while ago now. The story of the real beginning of this book, it begins when I was 16, and it begins with a boyfriend, as so many stories do. And my first boyfriend, he was a little bit older than me, but he was a civil engineer, and he was English. I live in England now. And uh, he came to visit me in New York. I grew up in New York City. But I think he didn't really want to visit me, I have to say. He wanted to visit the Brooklyn Bridge. He had never walked on the Brooklyn Bridge. And to my knowledge, I had not either. So I went with the boyfriend to the Brooklyn Bridge. It was a beautiful winter's day. And this is not an uncommon experience. I was transported by the beauty of this structure. And I was lucky, I think, to be with someone then who could tell me a little bit about how it worked. And that it wasn't just beautiful, but that it was really an extraordinary construction. The boyfriend went away. He dumped me. Boyfriends do. But I remained fascinated by the bridge and started to wonder really how it was made. So I started to read about it. I read David McCulloch's extraordinary book, The Great Bridge. And as I kept reading, I read papers, I read engineering documents, I started to read letters, and I heard the voice of Washington Roebling. For Washington Roebling was not only an extraordinary engineer, he is an extraordinary writer. I'm a writer. I've read written lots of different kinds of books, none of them about engineering, but he spoke to me as one writer to another. And I felt that he'd been overlooked a bit. He always felt a bit hard done by in his life, that people confused him with his father, John Roebling, a very famous engineer. And I wanted to tell his story, and I wanted people to hear his voice as it had spoken to me over all these years, because it's a very inspiring voice. He didn't have an easy life. Some people thought he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth, but he wasn't, not really. And he, overcome, he overcame many obstacles. And what I discovered was that in my life, when things were hard, everyone has tough times in their life. Washington's example was an inspiration for me. And aside from telling the extraordinary story of his long life, 
because he was born in 1837 and he lived until 1926. I also thought that his example could inspire others and be helpful to people as he had been helpful to me. Along the way, did you ever decide you wanted to be an engineer and build bridges? I never decided that, no. I knew that that was not my strong point. And indeed, in the research for this book, it's not a very technical book, I have to say. I don't want to scare people who might be worried that it's full of a lot of equations. Um, it was a challenge for me to really come to understand how a bridge like the Brooklyn Bridge and other bridges work. But Washington was very good at explaining this, and particularly in all of the reports that he wrote about the building of the Brooklyn Bridge for the trustees of the Brooklyn Bridge, who were not engineers. So I do think it's possible to explain technical things clearly for the layperson. I came to understand them, but I knew that I was not going to be an engineer. I think my, my teachers would have told you that early on. <laughs> you said that um, he was born with a silver spoon in his mouth but had a rough upbringing. How did those two happen? So he was born in 1837, and he was born in Pennsylvania. He was born in Saxonburg, Pennsylvania, which was the town that his father, John Roebling, built when he came from Germany in 1831. He emigrated from Germany, as it was not then called, in 1831 in order to have the opportunities that the United States offered. And he came with his brother and a lot of other Germans, and they built a town called Saxonburg, which is not far from Pittsburgh. And it remains a beautiful little town, really just as John Roebling built it. Little wooden houses, all in rows, it's gorgeous. And it takes its history very seriously, so there's a very good historical association there. So you can really see it as it was in Washington's day. John Roebling was one of the great men of his time. The family's fortune was founded on his development of wire rope. Wire rope that isn't only useful for building bridges, but is useful for elevators, cable cars, the telephone, the telegraph. John A. Roebling's son's company became eventually one of the great industrial companies of the United States. Did they invent wire rope? Yes, so John Roebling held the, he didn't invent it, but he patented it in the United States in 1842. It had been used in mines in Germany, he'd heard about that, uh, starting in kind of the 1830s. So he really powered the use of this extraordinary material, which is still in everything you see. You know, it makes the modern city. There would not have been, you know, Elisha Otis would not have been able to develop his elevator without wire rope. Can you give a layperson's explanation about what it is? Wire rope? Yeah. Well, I can show you. Ah. So this is a piece of Roebling rope. The John A. Roebling Sons Company doesn't exist anymore. But I gather, I am told by an antique dealer, that this is uh, Roebling rope from before the company ended. And you can see, it looks like a piece of rope only made out of metal. That's what wire rope is. John Roebling developed it when he was working as a surveyor on something called the Portage Railway, 
which were ramps to drag canal boats up and over the Allegheny Mountains. And they were dragged using huge hawsers of Kentucky hemp, these great big ropes that cost thousands of dollars, which was a lot of money uh, in the 1840s. And the trouble with these hawsers were they would break. And the load would fall down the mountains, and people would be killed, and it wasn't a great situation. And John Roebling wondered if you couldn't make rope out of metal. And he went back to Saxonburg, and he gathered his neighbors together, <coughs> excuse me, and he started to develop a process by which you could make rope out of metal. And that's what wire rope is. It takes many different forms now. It's made out of many different kinds of metal. He first started making it in iron, and then eventually in steel. And the cables of the Brooklyn Bridge are made of steel. It's the first steel bridge. So he was an extraordinary, inventive, energetic, brilliant man. And that's how the world saw him. But at home, he was a tyrant. He was really an extraordinarily brutal father and a brutal husband as well. Johanna Roebling died of exhaustion, really, when she was still a couple of years younger than I am now. She had a really tough life. Did, did she never did, learned. Did the son blame the father for the death of the mother? Yes, he did. He did. Um, he both admired his father and hated his father. He had a very conflicted relationship. I want to read this, what you wrote about it. You say, uh, uh, his father's office in Was uh, Washington called the sacred room, which was also an execution room where I was beaten nigh unto death. None of us children ever dared enter it. That's right. So why, when he reached adulthood, didn't Washington Roebling beat feet for as far away from his father as he could get? Well, that's the mysterious thing, really. One of the remarkable things about Washington is he had an extraordinary sense of duty. His father died in 1869, very suddenly. His father was going to build the Brooklyn Bridge. He had made the early designs for the Brooklyn Bridge, and he'd been hired by trustees of what came to be called the New York Bridge Company, great men of Brooklyn and New York who were going to fund, raise money for this bridge, and they hired John Roebling because he was a great engineer. And then in July of 1869, he was 63, he had what seemed to be a very minor accident. He was standing on some ferry pilings in Brooklyn, looking where the bridge would go, and a boat started to come in, and Washington saw it. Washington was with him. John Roebling didn't see it, and Washington yelled to his father to get down. And John started to move, but before he could get off, the boat came and hit against the pilings, and John Roebling's toes were crushed in the ferry pilings. Washington didn't realize what had happened at first, and he has written an extraordinary account of this accident in what is a part memoir, part biography. I'll come back to the discovery of that. So he gives an extraordinary account of this accident. 
So John Roebling's toes were crushed. He was taken back to the house where Washington and his wife Emily were living. Another thing about John Roebling was he did not believe in conventional medicine, such as it was at the time. He believed only in what was known at the time as the water cure. He was a real crank. I mean, I have to say he puts Gwyneth Paltrow and Goop absolutely to shame. And the other thing about the family is over the years they were subjected to all kinds of terrible health regimens. You so, say there was a fellow by the name of Bourne who came to the house oh, and dictated what the whole family ate and drank. Uh, they ate conical heaps of graham flour three inches high that was chewed dry for one minute per chew by the watch, half a teaspoon, and the word of command swallowed so none of it was gone or secretly spat out. Exactly. That's right. And also Bourne, I'm very glad you picked up on Bourne because he, he was an extraordinary, he was a real, he was a charlatan. Bourne had been a printmaker in New York. He printed photographic plates and he went bankrupt and then he set himself up as a health cure purveyor. And John Roebling brought him back to the house and made the family live on this regimen, which also, I think, included dried fruit, which was usually moldy. And Washington says that the children were very grateful if sometimes there were worms in the fruit, because at least that was like a little protein. So, and there was no saying no to John Roebling. He was an incredibly forceful man. So when he had this accident, Washington called a doctor, but John sent him away. And he instructed the people around him how he would be cured. He had a big tin bath made and water flowing into it over his foot. This did not cure him. He died about 10 days later of tetanus, which is a really, really terrible way to die. And Washington sat by his bedside the whole time. And what's particularly striking about his account of his father's death is it's worth bearing in mind at this time, in 1869, Washington had served throughout the Civil War. And he had been at many of the greatest and most terrible battles of the Civil War. But he wrote that nothing compared with the horror of his father's death, which is really something to think about, I think. So July 1869, some plans had been made for the Brooklyn Bridge, but not much. Washington was 32 years old, and he was the one man, having been his father's lieutenant for some years by then, who could take on the job. Was he enthusiastic about it, or do you feel like, oh, now I'm stuck with this? No, actually. That's a good question. It's a very good question. Washington was someone who always did what he had to do. If a job was put in front of him, he would do it. He would always rise to a challenge. And he simply had no choice about this. There is a moment a couple of years before in his story, in 1867, where he shows that he did want to get away from his father and that he saw that he might have a life that was not one 
always as his father's assistant. Before the Brooklyn Bridge was begun, in 1867, John Roebling sent Washington to Europe on a really remarkable trip to study the technologies that would be most useful in the building of a bridge over the East River. The manufacture of wire rope that was happening particularly well in England, and also the use of caissons, which are the underground chambers that are used to make the foundations of a bridge, such as the Brooklyn Bridge. And that was technology absolutely in its infancy, but it was going on in Europe. So Washington and his young wife, Emily, went off to Europe. And while they were in Germany, Washington met up with a young man about his own age, so Washington was 30 at the time, called Eugen Langens. And Langens had developed a new kind of engine at the time. Engines were powered by steam. And the thing about a steam engine is you can't really turn it on and off. You know, you see a locomotive, you have to keep feeding the boiler. So in order, if you have a factory, in order to have a steam engine, you really need to have a pretty big factory. You need to be able to afford to keep a steam engine going constantly. So it's not much use for the smaller businessman or artisan. But Langens thought that you might be able to make an engine powered by gas. And this engine, you could easily turn on and off. And Washington thought that this was a pretty good idea. And he wondered if he might get hold of, work with Langens, to get the United States patent for this device. And he could go home and sell this gas engine. And this would be his business. He was very keen on this. And he wrote lots of letters home about it. The trouble was he didn't have any money because his father kept him on a very tight leash. Among other things, John Roebling, although he'd by then made a great fortune, was very, very stingy. So Washington didn't have any money of his own, and he wrote home to his brother saying, I wish I could do this, but I don't have any money. So he wrote to his father cautiously, setting out this idea that this is what he would really like to do. And his father wrote him a very dismissive letter. Not just dismissive about the fact of Washington going into business on his own, but completely dismissive about the possibilities of the gas engine. He didn't think this was ever going to take off. So Washington should forget all about it and just carry on with his work. I came to this studio in a car today after I got off the train station. So I think we know that in this instance, John Roebling was wrong about the future of the gas engine. But you say Washington Roebling always hated cars. Exactly. And we can't completely convincingly draw this connection, but I think it's interesting that it is said that until he died at the age of nearly 90, Washington never set foot in an automobile. Mm -hmm. It's as worth a, saying. There's a couple things I want to ask about that. Um, the Civil War, did he join the army in the Civil War to get away from his father? 
his father instructed him to join the army. He told the story, he told the story many different times and in different versions in 1861, shortly after the war started. Washington was home at the family dinner table and John Roebling looked across at him and said, don't you think you have stretched your legs under my mahogany for long enough? And Washington said that he was lifting a potato to his mouth as his father said this. And he didn't even get the potato into his mouth. He dropped it and he got up and he went out, up, went out the door and he signed up. So that's the story of his enlistment. How was it that he managed to what, draw the short straw and end up at, uh, sounds like, all the major battles? It really war. is extraordinary. It really is um, extraordinary how many battles of the Civil War Washington Roebling was at. Chancellorsville, Antietam, Second Bull Run, Gettysburg, in which he played a crucial role, the Battle of the Crater, and also considering um, the casualty rates which were really terrifying in the Civil War, as you know. He also had the devil's own luck because, amazingly, he was never wounded. Sometimes it's true, one of the things that he was doing in the Civil War was building bridges. He was seconded to build bridges. Um, but he definitely was in the thick of battle on many occasions. And he wrote of some extraordinarily narrow escapes that he had of bullets glancing off his horse's saddle or bouncing off the peak of his cap. And his descriptions of these battles are really extraordinary, both in letters that he wrote at the time. He wrote home, of course, to his brothers, to his father, um, and eventually to his fiancée. But then later, too, he was recognized as an older man, as someone who had been in these battles, and so historians wrote to him and asked him to tell the stories, and so he did. So there's a, a wealth of material about his service in the Civil War. One of the things you write about is that he was on Little Round Top at yes. Gettysburg under the command of uh, G.K. Warren. That's right, exactly. And there's a statue now at Gettysburg of G.K. Warren. And Washington said later of his service at Little Round Top, that there is not much credit to be had in running up that little hill, but I think there is some credit in staying there. So Warren saw that I think a troop of men from Alabama were about to take this hill, which offers an extraordinary vantage point over the battlefield at Gettysburg. And so he said to his men to Washington's brigade, get up the hill. And Washington writes a gripping description of, it's quite steep, this hill. And so the horses couldn't pull the cannons up the top of the hill. They had to push from the bottom. And then they held this hill. And shortly afterwards, Joshua Lawrence Chamberlain executed that famous maneuver of the 20th Maine wheeling around and charging the Confederates. So it really was a very significant moment in that very significant battle. Um, Washington, however, played um, uh, a significant role, too, in 
the Union Army's awareness that the battle was going to happen, because another thing that Washington did was he was one of the first people ever to go up in a balloon in war. So at the end of June, he went up in one of, Thaddeus Lowe was a man who developed what was called, I think, the Aeronautical Corps of the United States, the beginning of the Air Force. And the Union Army started to use captive balloons, captive meaning they weren't free floating, but they were tethered to the ground. And around the end of June, Washington went up in one, and he saw that the campfires of General Lee were not burning anymore. And it seemed as if he was heading for Pennsylvania. And he came back down, and that affected the movements of the troops towards Gettysburg. So that's a good story, too. And uh, subsequently, he met uh, General Warren's sister, who you mentioned, uh, Emily. That's How right. did they meet? They met at a ball. Emily Warren was G.K. Warren's much beloved younger sister. She was quite a lot younger, 13 years younger, I think, than he was. And he loved her very much. He, when she was a girl, he made sure to pay for her education, which is not something that families always did for their daughters. And in February of 1864, there was a ball held in Washington, Washington, D.C. And this is where Washington met Emily Warren. And we understand that up until this point, Washington had not had a lot of love affairs. There's one letter from his mother that seems to indicate he was pretty reserved in that department. But when he met Emily, he fell head over heels for her. And he wrote to his sister. His, his favorite sister was called Elvira. And he wrote to Elvira that, I do believe that Emily has captured your brother Washi's heart at last. And they married in 1865. It sounds like Emily could be a subject of a book all on her own. Indeed she could. Emily could absolutely be the subject of a book. I want to read uh, what you wrote about her education. She went to Georgetown Academy and studied profane history, ancient and modern, geography, mythology, prose, composition, rhetoric and grammar, French, algebra, geometry, bookkeeping, astronomy, botany, meteorology, chemistry, geology, and housekeeping and uh, domestic economy, needlework, painting, and music. She was a very well-educated young woman. One could absolutely write a novel. Uh, one could write a book about Emily. Um, the reason I said novel is because I think that's one of the ways you might choose to do it, because the difficulty with Emily is not a lot of her letters survive. There are a few papers, which is quite interesting. Washington destroyed the letters that she wrote to him during the war. He states that, he writes to her, that he found it too painful to keep her letters with him because they reminded him that he was not with her and that he was in this terrible war, so he would read them and destroy them. So we only have half of their correspondence during the war. Then, of course, the two of them were together, but not a lot of her papers survive. So she is absolutely fascinating. But one of the things that's fascinating about her is she does remain a little bit mysterious. She went to law school. 
Indeed, she did. She well, was how many one women of, went to law school She was school one then? of the first women um, to graduate from law school. She went to a course that was devised specially for women. It wasn't, in fact, a full law course, but it was run by NYU, and she graduated. And she had a really fascinating life, even outside the way that she helped her husband during the building of the Brooklyn Bridge. The other thing I want to ask you about that you mentioned is caissons. Yes. They're these big boxes made of wood. That's right. And so the Brooklyn Bridge is basically sitting on wood. Well, yes. The boxes have been filled in since, so they're not only sitting on wood. Could you explain the function of those? Yes, I could. Um, so a caisson looks like an upside-down ship or a diving bell. You can think about it looking like a diving bell. And... The caissons of the Brooklyn Bridge were built of wood. They're enormous, and they were launched from the Brooklyn Navy Yard and told out, towed out to where they belonged, and then sunk down onto the river's bed. And what happens in a caisson is men go down into the caisson and underneath the surface of the water, and they dig out. Right? They're digging out the soil and the sand and the rocks until they hit bedrock. And while they're digging, stone is being piled up on top to build the towers of the bridge. You ask yourself, how is the river kept out of the caisson? It's kept out with compressed air, right? So air is pushed forcefully into the caisson, so the atmosphere is very dense, and the men working in the compressed air have the same experience as people now have when they're diving, right? So you go diving deep underwater and you experience increased atmosphere, the air pressure increases. And people who go diving now know that when you are deep below the surface of the water, you have to come up very slowly so you don't get what's still called the bends. And the bends is bubbles of nitrogen in your blood that get stuck, particularly in your joints, and can even go up to your brain and cause paralysis, terrible pain, even death. But nobody knew that then, and that was one of the great dangers during the building of the Brooklyn Bridge. And many men were affected by it, and Washington himself was very badly affected by it. Was that what caused his health problems? That seems to be the beginning of his health problems. Again, how exactly he was afflicted during the course of his long life after the building of the Brooklyn Bridge, he always claimed that he was an invalid. It's true that he was raised in a household where there was a lot of anxiety and neurosis around health. He was always very anxious about his health, even before this. But certainly, he was very badly affected by the bends. He collapsed. We now know also, only in the past 20 or 30 years, that caisson disease as it was called then, decompression sickness, as it's called now, can destroy the tiny, tiny little blood vessels 
that are in your bones and kill them off. This is called dysbaric osteonecrosis. And this has only been discovered fairly recently. But that can cause long-lasting pain throughout your life. So even if the decompression sickness is cured, you'll still have this pain. And it's possible that Washington suffered from this. But he was ill for the rest of his life as a result, really coming after his work. So it sounds, uh, he refers to himself as an invalid and he d never went to the construction site, but lived, lived another 20 years beyond that. I mean, it sounded like he was at death's oh, door. yes, exactly. No, he lived another 40, 50 years hmm. beyond that. The Brooklyn Bridge was finished in 1883 and he died in 1926. He was 89 when he died. Um, and he did some extraordinary things in his later life. But yes, um, after the 1870s, he did not go down to the bridge site anymore. Although he was always fully in control of the work, there were rumors that he had gone insane, that he was completely blind. He was not visible, but he always knew what was going on, and he had an extraordinary amanuensis helpmeet in Emily, who was of remarkable assistance to him. She was the only person he the building of would the meet with during the, he the was, She was the only person he would meet with. He could not tolerate anyone else's presence. So part of his problem is psychological? I think you always have to be careful with retrospective diagnosis. I don't know is the correct answer to that question. Certainly, he was under an extraordinary, terrible amount of stress. He had been through an appalling war. But again, I think you have to be careful about saying he had PTSD because that wasn't something that would ever have been described that way at the time. So as I say, I, I don't know. He was affected in many different ways. His sight was very badly affected. Emily took dictation from him. He would describe what had to happen. He would write letters to the trustees. And there's a point after, I think, December 1875, where in the archives, everything that was in his handwriting, drafts of letters, suddenly goes to her handwriting. It's still clearly his writing, it's his voice, but she is taking dictation from him. Well, how could he be chief engineer of the project if he never went and actually looked at the bridge? Well, people did worry that. And in 1882, there was a move to have him ejected from the job. There was a belief that it was all going too slowly and that maybe this was the chief engineer's fault and the fault of that because he wasn't actually down at the bridge site. I don't believe this was ever the case. He managed to hang on to his job. He also had, aside from Emily, he had a team of extraordinary people working with him, assistant engineers, who were very, very loyal to him. And he had made a huge number of plans along the way. So there was always a strong direction in which the bridge was going. And he remained the chief engineer 
until the bridge was completed. But he would never meet with his subordinate nope. engineers. He wouldn't. So what was Emily's job? He wouldn't. She, her job was to go out and meet with them and convey his instructions. And she also met with the trustees because any, as we know now to this day, any giant project of infrastructure is not just a job of engineering, but it's a job of politics, maybe more a job of politics even than it is uh, of engineering. And he always said that Emily was a woman of extraordinary tact and diplomacy. She clearly was extremely charming, intelligent, fascinating. She knew a huge amount about the work. She became extremely knowledgeable about the work. I think she was probably a far better diplomat and tactician than Washington ever was or would have been. He was a man who would always speak his mind, sometimes to his own cost. So I think her role in smoothing things over, in tamping down difficulties was very, very important. And there is, there's a plaque to her on the Brooklyn oh, Bridge. Oh, so she did get credit As there for should this. be. Oh, yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Did she go down to the bridge site all the time? Uh, yes, she would go down to the bridge site. And she was also the first person. She was very proud when the bridge was completed, nearly completed. She was the first person to ride across the bridge in a carriage, which was not, there was a newspaper at the time that described this as an empty honor. But in fact, Washington wanted to test the effect of a trotting horse on the bridge. And that's why she went across the bridge in her carriage. She was a great horsewoman and carriage rider as well. You write about some of the other bridges that Roebling and his father built beforehand. Are any of them still standing? Uh, one of them is still standing. Um, there is a very beautiful bridge in Cincinnati. Uh, between, it's called, it used to be called the Covington-Cincinnati Bridge. It's now called the Roebling Bridge over the Ohio. And that was finished in 1867. It's undergone some renovation since. It had cables added to it, so it looks a little bit different than it did when John Roebling finished it. But it is still there. And when you see it, it looks a little bit like it's built very differently. It's not built using caissons. But it looks a little like an early version of the Brooklyn Bridge. Very famously, uh, in the 1850s, uh, John Roebling bridged Niagara. And he built a suspension bridge over Niagara Falls, not just a suspension bridge, but a suspension bridge that could carry a locomotive. And that was really extraordinary at the time. There's a marvelous photograph, one of my favorite photographs in the book, which is at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in their archives, is a stereopticon photograph of Blondin, the great tightrope walker, crossing Niagara on a tightrope. You can see him, and you can, he's holding his pole. And behind Blondin is John Roebling's Niagara Bridge. And he did a couple of Pennsylvania bridges, uh, the yes, Sixth Street Bridge the Sixth Street in Pittsburgh, Bridge, and that's an right. aqueduct exactly. over the uh, yes. Allegheny River? That's right. Was that for and the Pennsylvania Canal? That was for the Pennsylvania Canal, I do believe. And he built a lot of aqueducts. That was his early work, was building, was John Roebling's work, was building aqueducts. And that, that was how he sort of made his early reputation as a bridge builder. Could you, uh, again, in layperson's terms, describe how a suspension bridge works? 
What are they suspending? Gosh, so what they're suspending is a roadway over a body of water, in the case of the Brooklyn Bridge. And so you, a suspension bridge works both in tension and in compression. Okay, so the cables are in tension. You have great steel cables in the case of the Brooklyn Bridge, and they are attached quite far back on the land to anchorages that hold them down. There are huge piles of granite on top of the, the base of the cables to hold them firmly down, and the cables are in tension, pulled apart like this. And then you have the weight of the towers bearing down and holding those cables. And then what you also need in a suspension bridge, and this was, um, this was something that John Roebling um, firmly believed in, that in order for a suspension, suspension bridge to function effectively and not fall down, because when he started building bridges, a lot of bridges fell down, that the roadway had to be very stiff. So it would not be affected by vibration or wind. And if you look at that very famous film that was taken, I think in the 1940s, but I don't remember, of Galloping Gertie, the Tacoma Narrows Bridge that shook itself apart, it's a lesson that has not always been learned because the problem with that bridge was it was not stiff. So when it started to vibrate, the vibrations kept resonating and eventually it flew itself apart. So the Brooklyn Bridge was pretty early in big bridges. Indeed. I mean, when it was finished, it was by far the longest bridge in the world. And before it was begun, there were plenty of people who didn't think it was possible to build a bridge that size. And it's worth remarking that its length was not significantly exceeded for 50 years. It was exceeded a little bit by feet at a time. But the George Washington Bridge was the first bridge, which was finished in the 30s, to really significantly exceed the span of the Brooklyn Bridge. Was it big news while it was being built? It was enormous news while it was being built. And it was extraordinary news when it was finished in 1833. In, in, in 1883. And the descriptions of the celebrations, the fireworks, and the parades that happened when it was finished in 1883 are really quite something. They really make you wish you were there. 500 tons of fireworks, I think, were let off from the bridge, not around the bridge, but from the bridge itself. Washington Roebling was very doubtful about this. He didn't, in fact, want there to be fireworks. His concern was not entirely misplaced because the promenade was then, as it is now, made out of wood. So he was very concerned about fireworks going off on a partly wooden structure, but nothing happened. And the descriptions in contemporary newspapers of the time are really fabulous. You have a picture of, of him sitting in his room with the bridge in the distance. Could he see the bridge going up from where his room was? Um, once he came back to Brooklyn, he could. But for a, some time, for a few years of the building of the bridge, he was actually in Trenton. He was in New Jersey um, because that's where the family home was. John A. Roebling Sons Company was in Trenton. So for quite a while, he was not only 
away from the site, but really away from the site. He was in Rhode Island, too, for a little while in the 1880s. Did he anticipate cars or buses or trains going over the bridge? Did he allow for that, or did it have, did it have to kind of rebuild the bridge since Well, then? there were trains across the bridge oh, in the initially. Beginning? There was a special bridge train. So the trains were not when the bridge opened. And there's actually, there is a remarkable piece of film. If you go to the Library of Congress, you can see film that was taken from the front of one of the bridge trains in 1898, I believe. And someone has a camera in the front window of one of these little trains. The trains weren't attached to the main transit rail system. You got on at one end of the Brooklyn Bridge, then you got off at the other, and the trains ran on a kind of endless loop of rope. So there were always going to be some kind of public transport across the bridge. And then there were uh, carriages, of course, and there's always been the promenade across the top. But yes, it's remarkable that the bridge still functions as it does. It was in the truss work was strengthened in the middle of the 20th century. And of course, you can't drive a truck across the Brooklyn Bridge. You can only go across it in a car, so there are weight limits on the bridge. But 134 years after it opened, it's still going strong. What number book is this for you? Four? Five? <laughs> I'd have to look at the list in the beginning. Is this your first biography? This is sort of my first biography. Uh, I wrote a book that came out in 2000, which is called Ariel's Gift, which is about the poets Ted Hughes and Sylvia Plath and the story of birthday letters, which is the book that was published, Poems by Ted Hughes, that was published just before he died in 1998, um, that are in dialogue with his late wife the American poet, Sylvia Plath. Ariel's Gift is a book about a book of poems, but it is perforce also a kind of biography of the two of them. But this is certainly the first big hardcover biography that how, I've written. How did you know how to do it? It was hard. And that's partly why it took me so long to do. This is a book that I wanted to write since I was a teenager. I had been carrying Washington's picture in my wallet since I was 19 years old. And I had several stabs at trying to do this. I still have a box of index cards. Notes I took in the New York Public Library when I was 20. That was my first time of thinking about how I was going to do this. But I kept telling myself, if I'm perfectly honest, why not? I kept telling myself that I wasn't up to the task. I kept telling myself all the things I didn't know about the Civil War, about American history, about engineering. But I'm a journalist, as well as an author. And a journalist's job, as you know, is to find stuff out. So anything you're interested in, as I became older and maybe a little bit more confident, I just thought I will find out what I need to know. I had extraordinary support from 
other historians, from engineers who read over the book and made sure there weren't too many terrible mistakes in it. I had wonderful support from archivists, particularly the archives. The Roebling papers are divided between Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute in upstate New York, which is where Washington went to college, and Rutgers University in New Jersey because the Roeblings were a very prominent New Jersey family. So the papers of the family are divided roughly all the technical stuff is at RPI and all the personal papers are at Rutgers. And those are extraordinary resources and it was really wonderful to explore those archives. Did Washington Roebling donate his papers to Rensselaer? Uh, yes, he did, so the, the family did. Because it sounds like from your book it was not a happy time for him. It was not a happy time for him. <laughs> did his father say, you will go to Rensselaer? Well, it's interesting because at the time it wasn't really necessary to go to college to be an engineer. Plenty of engineers just learned on the job. One of Washington's wonderful assistants was a man called Colonel William Payne and they had met during the Civil War, and he was a very important assistant to Washington during the building of the Brooklyn Bridge. And Payne didn't go to college. He learned in the saddle. And that was quite common at the time. And engineering schools, technical schools, particularly that were not military schools, civil engineering as opposed to military engineering, this was a relatively new idea. So yes, Washington didn't really have a choice as to whether he was going to be an engineer. He was sent off to Rensselaer. And if you read about what the curriculum was like, it makes you very glad that you didn't go to college then. It was really terrifyingly tough. And also, as I mentioned before, his father kept him on a very tight leash. So his housing was very poor. He seems to have been hungry all the time. There was an amazing dropout rate from RPI. I think there were 50 people in his class, roughly 50 people, and only 12 of them, I believe, graduated. So it was really tougher. You know, I have a 17-year-old son, and when he complains about his schoolwork, I say, could be worse. Well, with, with such a, it sounds like, dysfunctional father, did any of his siblings go crazy? His youngest brother, Edmund, is, seems to be a very sad story. There were seven of them altogether, seven children, four brothers. Um, Washington, his younger brother, Ferdinand, and Charles, and Edmund. Ferdinand ran the business of John A. Roebling Sons. Charles also became a great engineer. Edmund was quite young when their mother died in 1865. She was, by all accounts, the great ameliorating influence on the household. And Edmund had a very unhappy life. Do you he, refer to him as mysterious tragedy? Well, he ran away from home. He ended up in jail at some point. He really was completely removed from the family. I didn't do a huge amount of research into his life because he's outside of the scope of what I was doing. And that's the other um, thing, of course, when you're writing a book like this, particularly of someone who has such a long life. You have to make yourself stop 
because otherwise he would go on forever. But, but Edmund had a very unhappy life and never really went on to, to do anything. Well, you said that, he, uh, that uh, Washington lived for another 40 or 50 years after the Brooklyn Bridge. What, what did he do? He was a very wealthy man. Was he a good businessman? Emily, yes, he was a good businessman, although he wasn't directly involved in the running of John A. Roebling's sons. He was a vice president of the company, but he didn't take a salary for many, many years. But the last chapter of his life is quite remarkable because despite his constant complaints of ill health, and actually there are letters from Emily later in his life. She predeceased him. She died in 1903. But she was always writing to their only son, John, about how annoying it was that Washington was always complaining about his health and we had to call Dr. Clark again and he says he will be dead by morning. And he was fine. There's a wonderful letter she wrote to John. Uh, she said, Today on their wedding anniversary. Today your father has been married for 31 years. I, twice as long. <laughs> so it was a happy marriage, but every marriage has its conflict. But despite his constant ill health, he outlived both of his brothers and his nephews. And so at the age of 84, he took over the running of John A. Roebling's son's company. He this, said he was working full-time. He was working full-time. He, as we discussed before, he wouldn't get in a car, so he rode the trolley to the office every morning. The trolley apparently stopped specially for him outside of his house, and he took his dog to the office. The dog also had special dispensation to ride on the trolley, and he went into the office from nine to five. And according to John, his son, he really modernized the company. And he ran it for the next four years to the age of 88. And there's a town called Roebling, New Jersey? Indeed, there is a town called Roebling, New Jersey, which is the former Roebling Mill. And it's now, I should say, it's an absolutely wonderful little museum set in beautiful grounds, which used to be the mill site, but is a super fun site, so has been cleaned up and made very verdant and beautiful. It's about 10 miles just outside of Trenton, and it's a fascinating little museum. And you said earlier you live in London, England? I do live in London. What do you do there? <laughs> I am a writer. I'm a teacher. For 17 years, I was literary editor of the Times newspaper. Now I write for a lot of different publications. I write for the New Statesman. I write for the Harper's Bazaar, and I teach writing at Goldsmiths. University. It's part of the University of London. But yes, I've lived, although I've hung on to my accent, I have lived in Britain for 30 years now. How is it that the Times of London trusted an American with being their literary editor? That is another question to which I have to answer. I don't know, but they did, and it was a wonderful job to do for a long time. And what did it involve? What does that mean? It involves commissioning book reviews. If you read the book review section of any newspaper, somebody has to decide what books are going to be reviewed and who reviews them and what you review when. That's what a literary editor does. So that was a, that was a great thing to do. And you really get to see, well, you get to see everything that's published. So it's fascinating. 
So uh, if people want to go and see Washington Roebling's work, is, are, are there things still standing other than the two bridges we talked about, the Brooklyn Bridge and the Not really. Covington? Nothing else? Not really. Um, did he build anything? After that? After that, or no, did he, he did just did ran the wire rope company? No, he did not. He lived a quiet life. He was a great mineralogist. He had a great passion for geology. That was his, that was his true passion, in a way. He had an extraordinary mineral collection. He determined, after, he, after the bridge was finished and he settled at home, Emily built a beautiful house, a very grand house in Trenton that doesn't exist anymore. It was pulled down some years ago. But by all accounts and from the photographs, it really was a great mansion. It even had a bowling alley in the basement. But it had a special room for Washington's Mineral Museum. And his determination was to collect one of every kind of mineral in the world. He didn't achieve that aim. It's probably not achievable. But he tried pretty hard. And his mineral collection, in his will, he said that it should be donated to the Smithsonian Institution. And it's still there. It's not all together as a collection. But you can see some of his really beautiful minerals if you go to the Smithsonian. Now you said that the, this book was in the works for decades. Yes. Do you have other biographies in mind, or is this the, the one that you, you shoot your load on this one? This is, I'm sure I will write other biographies. I've written a novel, too. I'm also a novelist. But this is a book that has been extremely close to my heart. I have to say, I wonder if I will ever write anything that means as much to me as this book does. It's hugely important to me. Because as I say, Washington has been my companion for a long time now. He's someone who I think about often. If I'm struggling with something, if I feel in despair, if I feel I need extra courage to get through something, I will think about him. And it helps. Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking with Erica Wagner. She is the author of this book, Chief Engineer Washington Roebling, The Man Who Built the Brooklyn Bridge. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.